And I read that you had to have 18 different businesses before you found one that actually worked. And I added it up and we tried 15 different things before we found one that had sustainable cash flow that we could actually build a business model on and really grow and expand upon. How do you do research? And is this 96 still? Yeah, that's wow. You ask hard questions. <laughs> Man, back in the day, there was there's 7 billion people in the world. There's about 2 billion jobs. Don't try to go through school and end up only focused on one job. Yeah, I think it's a mental position. And I think the best thing that you can do, something that I did that was really helpful is... And so how much did he offer you in salary? That would be a big solid zero. Although he did pick up my credit card bill, which I appreciated. I remember in the wintertime walking outside and if it was after six o'clock, it was pitch black. So when I got to work, it was dark. And when I went home, it was dark. I moved back in with my parents, which is probably the hardest thing I've ever done, to be honest with you. Hi, everybody. My name is Jim Warner. I am the CEO of Keymark. We are based out of South Carolina. Specifically, we're based out of Liberty, South Carolina, which is located near Greenville and also near Clemson, home of the Clemson Tigers, the eventual 2020 national champions in football. We are a business process management company. We focus on automating different business processes. Our main verticals that we work in are healthcare, our insurance. We do a lot of business with the government entities out there. And we do a lot with financial services. What we actually accomplish is utilizing workflow technology and artificial intelligence to automate processes that involve, for all intents and purposes, mission-critical applications. So we're thrilled that the new artificial intelligence era has come upon us because we've been doing machine learning for the better part of 14 or 15 years. Now that everybody understands these terminologies and understand exactly what it is that they're trying to accomplish, we're excited that the nomenclature that we utilize on a daily basis is something that other people understand. So we don't have to go through that large learning curve. So we're thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. And we hope to have a very informative meeting today. What's the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? That's a great question. So machine learning is the ability for a machine to utilize optical character recognition and to pull information off of a sheet of paper or an electronic document. And basically, I found it kind of interesting because if I would ask you what you would consider to be the number one machine learning tool in the world, you would probably mention IBM's Watson. It's kind of like the profound de facto standard for machine learning. I was going to say Pornhub. Oh, <laughs> it's interesting where you're heading with that. So yeah, <laughs> I was actually down in the Virgin Islands one time. And we were doing a tour around the Virgin Islands. The first time you did the first half of the day, you basically don't really talk to anybody. In the second half, you start interacting with other humans again. And the woman sitting next to me just happened to mention that her husband was in charge of IBM's Watson. So I couldn't help myself. I had a chat with him. And I found out that basically he looks at me straight in the face and he goes, well, we did this thing called optical character recognition. And I looked at him and I thought, wow, we've been doing that for the better part of 15, 16, 17 years. So I then realized that machine learning really isn't this ultimately overly complex process. But the way that machine learning works is that you can read data. The machine basically can learn how the information is formatted and lift the information off of a document effectively. And ultimately, the key is, do you have the capability of doing something with that data once it's lifted? So think about something really simple, like basically you might use Surrey, you might use Alexa. And what does it actually do with the data once you actually have asked it a question, looked it up? and then processed it. So that's the difference between what machine learning is, which is really lifting data off of some kind of document or process and then being able to do something with it. 
Okay. Yeah. It's because I was just looked at an image. They basically had a circle with artificial intelligence being the biggest circle. And then within that is machine learning. So it's a smaller circle kind of within there. You're basically saying, so it's a little bit deeper than that. Yep. Yeah. And then they had one other thing, because I've heard this as well, deep learning, which is even smaller and within machine learning. It is. So deep learning, uh, we kind of apply the real core technology behind that would be at its simplest basis is a workflow engine or maybe a business process engine or even a rules engine where you actually have, you've taken what a human would consider to be a process and how a human thinks and you've applied logic to it to a database. And ultimately within that database, how a human would interact with the data coming in. So the end result is that hopefully you have consistent results coming out of whatever that process is. And then the key is not necessarily that you automate everything. That's kind of the beautiful thing about technology is people are scared that we're going to lose jobs. Really what we're going to end up doing is we're going to end up automating as much as humanly possible, make sure that everything's consistent. And in the back end, you're still going to have these amazing processes that humans are still interacting with. And instead of just doing the same mundane tasks all the time, we as humans are going to be able to just focus on those things that are interesting, that are neat, because our attention spans aren't very long, especially if an ADD or something along those lines, you're probably not going to be able to pay attention very long. So you have the capability of looking at the data and they'll be at your fingertips, whether it's a phone or a computer, or basically maybe even your television sitting in front of you and you'll be able to make a decision based upon that data in front of you at that point. What'd you say? I'm just kidding. Cause since you said I didn't have enough attention span, but I'm <laughs> saying what they're that is interesting to me with, you know, and hopefully anyone's listening now is intelligent enough too. if they're listening to this podcast, obviously they're super smart. But when you're talking about people being scared of losing their jobs because of any machine learning or artificial intelligence overall, I think hopefully anyone who's listening doesn't think that way because it's like, okay, let's say if you're a bookkeeper and you're able to automate all that, well, the bookkeeper is not going to be doing bookkeeping anymore, but they can do something else. And again, do something more creative, which I think every human being kind of wants to do and get rid of the mundane stuff like you were talking about. I think you're spot on there. And the nice thing about it is you have hopefully our educational systems catching on to this. So we're not doing the training anymore, even in K-12, just to get hopefully an education. I'm hoping that what we're doing is we're moving to the next level. We're training people to get a career. And that career hopefully is that you have expertise within a specific segment so that you can be interactive and effective within that area. So I sit on the board of a college. And for example, we don't sit around anymore and talk about obtaining a degree for the people that are going through that college. We talk about how do we get them to the next level and make sure that those individuals have a career once they leave there. Or another portion of what we consider is how do you take somebody who's basically whose job has been automated and then retrain them and repurpose them so that they are successful for the rest of their career. So hopefully let's say somebody's been in doing the same thing for 10, 15, 20 years. You know, the beautiful thing is they have all that knowledge within that space and there's no reason for them not to go back to school, especially with the benefits of how organizations are throwing money at retraining now. And even our governments are doing that to make sure that people can go through the retraining process so that they can back into the working force and be more effective. Even if it's not going back to school, it's really just, I think what shows about this like podcast, I have all different types of entrepreneurs on in all different types of industry, right? So you can easily apply something that you have in one industry and go to another one, right? Again, and people wanted to go back and get that education. And especially like you're saying, if your job is paying for it, then that's something different to me versus someone going back to get their master's and they have to pay their full ride. Take advantage of anything like you were saying, the business you're working for is willing to pay for it. You might as well take advantage of it. Absolutely. And I would say that if you do have business decision makers or owners on this podcast and listening, one of the things you need to reconsider, you have a lot of old processes and old thoughts where 
where do you invest back in education for your people? And I think that with where you're heading in today's world, instead of going through and automating as much as possible and thinking you're going to get rid of certain personnel, the thing I would encourage everybody to do is look at how you can retrain them and repurpose them so they can be more effective for you and grow your organization so it has the ability to thrive going forward. That's perfect. That's even like the people who are going to edit this podcast afterwards. I try to make sure that they have different things that they can do other than just editing the podcast, you know, that way that they also more interested in doing it. You know, if I just had the same people doing the same thing, which most of them do just the editing, but I try to give them extra jobs so they can do other things within their organization. And like you were saying, they could help your company overall and see the bigger picture and it helps them not do the same one thing over and over, if you will. So yeah, I mean, we got way deeper than I thought even just starting off here about artificial intelligence. And I appreciate you kind of talking about that. I appreciate what you're doing for your people too. So congratulations. That's awesome. And again, some people push back on me in that. They're like, I just want them to do this one thing. I'm like, dude, because a lot of mine are virtual assistants in the Philippines. Just because they're cheap labor doesn't mean like they're people too. You know what I'm saying? I don't care who you are. Even if you're me in America or somewhere in South America doing something, if you're doing the same thing over and over and over, you're not going to be happy. You need to switch it up. And a lot of them that work for me, even though they might just do editing for me right now, I try to give them the opportunity to do other things for me. But a lot of them have other jobs, too. And it's like I'd rather give them 20 hours a week working for me doing this, and then they can spend another 20 hours working for somebody else doing different types of tasks. Because then, again, it makes them more excited to do whatever tasks they're doing. I can tell that's why you're successful. I'm working on it, trying to get to your level, Jim. So if I'm looking here, you said, again, how old are you today? I'm 54. Okay, you're 54. And but Liberty, South Carolina, I mean, I think if most people just missed that in the beginning, I would think they probably thought you were in San Francisco. Yeah, the nice thing about it is we've been blessed because we are only about 10, 15 minutes from Clemson University and a couple other schools nearby. So we are able to hire very, very bright people that have a great work ethic And it's one of those things where everybody thinks of technology coming out of San Francisco. And what we've been able to do is have our own little, I guess, oasis of technology here in the upstate of South Carolina. Some things about the holiday season never change, even when everything around us is. So when your small business needs to ramp up for the new year, LinkedIn Jobs is ready to help. Because LinkedIn Jobs matches your open roles with qualified candidates, which means you can find the right person for your business fast. You know, I love everything about the LinkedIn Jobs platform, but specifically, I love the option of being able to target a hire in your geographic area the most. See, LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. Getting started is easier than ever with the new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Post a job with targeted screening questions and they'll quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar linkedin.com as functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. And now you can do this all from your mobile device, no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn jobs can help you hire the right person faster. Visit linkedin.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I recently started reading a book called Believe in People, not only because they're sponsoring this ad spot, but because the book is filled with compelling examples of how to solve really big problems. 
Believe in People by Charles Koch and Brian Hooks is the collected stories of social entrepreneurs who created uncommon solutions for the common good. A former gang leader turned peace broker in his community, an amateur athlete who created one of the most innovative recovery programs in the country. Learn what inspired them to make things better in their communities and how they're still discovering new and better ways of doing things. It's a message of hope in a time of crisis and optimism in time of division. For anyone looking around the country right now and thinking there has to be a better way, well, this book is for you. That's right. Believe in People is out now. Order the book today at believeinpeoplebook.com forward slash inspiration. Again, the book is available right now, and you can get it at believeinpeoplebook.com forward slash inspiration. I try to tell most of my guests on here, there are intelligent people in the South because it seems like I'm the only one here. So glad we got another <laughs> guy here as well. So I guess with that overall, we touched on it, but can we make it simpler? Can you give us a case study on someone who like uses you and make it as simple as we can? And then after we talk about that, we can go ahead and reel it back to your journey and how you got started with this business. Yeah, let's really simplify it down to things that people deal with on a regular basis in business. So when you talk about machine learning, you basically, at its core level, we were the first organization ever to implement, successfully implement, invoice processing in the United States of America. If you notice, I didn't say we're the first to ever sell it. We were the first to implement it. And the way that you think about it is if you're an organization like yourself, you never have, you do have more than one vendor and that vendor does not have consistency of what the invoice looks like as it's coming in. So the reason we were successful is twofold. First of all, we had the right technology with the right machine learning tool. So the software that we utilized could identify based upon invoice coming in, the header data and the footer data, and then the detailed information in the middle of the invoice and could not only handle one template from one vendor, but could handle hundreds and hundreds of different templates as they came in the door. So some of the companies that we work with have tens of thousands of different vendors coming in. Well, it takes an awful long time for a human to set up all those various templates to be able to read the data off of that form. But with machine learning, you can basically let the machine run itself and the machine can automatically identify the PO number. It can read the address information. It can read a lot of information such as the phone number. It can obviously read the subtotals down in an invoice. And then it knows exactly what that invoice is based upon certain criteria. So the first time it sees it coming through, it's going to take a little bit of time to process. But the next time that invoice comes through from ABC vendor, it's going to know it automatically what that invoice is. And that's called machine learning. It's a unique way of automating different processes. So a lot of our customers utilize that from the accounts payable standpoint. And then we were able to take that and do something that was really fun, which was we were able to automate the first mailroom successfully using machine learning in the world. We did this up in Hastings, Michigan with a PNC insurance company. And the problem that they had, they called me up one day and they said, we have an issue where we can't hire 14 more people. And basically we have no more room in our mailroom, so we have to automate because we have all these workflow processes for both underwriting claims, and we need to do something different within our mailroom. So I mentioned to the CIO, if you could give us two weeks, we can come back to him with a few ideas. We kind of had it in our back pocket already. And we pretty much sat down and ironed out exactly what it would look like. And that was by utilizing specific mail opening equipment, which basically milled the outside of an envelope. We were able to extract the documents from there, put it into a scanner, and then utilize machine learning capabilities 
to actually read all of the different documents that are coming through, lift using optical character recognition the specific information, and then route it through a workflow system. Those are two specific examples of that's the first accounts payable solution in the United States, and it's also the first automated mailroom solution in the entire United States of America, if not the world. Well, stick on that. It's good that I said bookkeeping earlier. You know, it's funny that you said that was the first thing that you worked on. I just imagined that that would be a simple thing that you could do, right? And that you said that was the first thing you actually did do. It was. Yeah, let's jump to the second example. So the second example there. Oh, Hastings, Michigan, you said? Hastings, Michigan. That is correct. Okay. It's only like when I'm looking here, it says like 8,000 people live there. It's kind of a small place to randomly reach out to you. Did they just Google you in South Carolina and you flew up there? They were an existing customer of ours. So we had a really good relationship with them. And to their credit, they had a couple of individuals who had some international skills. One of the gentlemen's COO was well-traveled. He did a lot of work over in Japan and a lot of work over in Europe. And then their CIO was probably the most open person to solving problems and brainstorming that we've had the honor of working with. He basically loved the op- to give us a chance to, to just think through a couple of different solutions and figure out ways to solve it. And I think that in general, anytime you have an opportunity to work with people that are open-minded and you have an understanding as to these different technologies and how they can help people, you have a chance to really do some unique things and solve problems that no one else has been able to do before. It was a beautiful scenario where we were able to just listen to somebody, have an understanding as to where the industry was heading, because we have a lot of great friends out there that share with me where they're going. And the end result was quite remarkable to the point that little Hastings, Michigan, in the middle of nowhere with 8,000 people, I had people flying in from Russia, from South America, and from Europe, plus the United States, obviously, just to see what they were able to do. And this was the local postal service in that city? It was actually their own physical mailroom within their building. For what company? Hastings, Michigan. I mean, Hastings Insurance, Hastings Mutual Insurance Company. Hastings Mutual Insurance. And I guess they get that much. Is this a huge company that I don't know about? Well, it's funny because I just actually did a search and State Farm actually controls. They're the largest PNC provider for 37, 50 states in the United States. So everybody else is kind of playing second fiddle, right? And Hastings, Michigan is an PNC insurance company that does about a half a billion in annual premiums. Good sized company. See, so that's what I'm saying is like, if I just looked at the population, I'm like, you know, I didn't know if it's postal service or what's going on here, but it's a private and that's the way it works for insurance in case everyone's wondering. I mean, there's a lot of like sub insurance companies within the main insurance company. And you said they basically do half a billion in revenue a year. Yep. Okay. That makes a lot more sense why they would call you to me. If I thought it was a local Hastings post office, I'm like, what the hell are they calling you for? (laughs) Yeah, they would never call us. So staying on this example, you didn't mess around with any of the hardware, right? They already had that. You just dealt with the software and the intelligence part there? We actually brought in automated mailroom equipment, which is something that's kind of interesting because before the pandemic, we kind of thought that the mailroom business was, automated mailroom business was going to die, right? You have a lot more email traffic. You have a lot more electronic data. So mobile devices obviously are picking up in a big way. But because of this pandemic, the mailroom business has increased exponentially. The case that I mentioned, we work very close with a company called OPEX that is the leading provider. To be candid, they almost have a dominant 90% market share of automating various mailrooms across the United States, including the U.S. post offices. So this was recent that you just did this with Hastings Mutual Insurance? No, this was back in 2006. So that's kind of why I was alluding to the fact that it was interesting that everyone was bragging about Watson around 2015 and 16. 
But literally the technology that everyone's talking about with artificial intelligence really has been around a long time. It's evolved exponentially recently because people are now, they're now interested in it. But the core technology that everybody's using to automate the various processes that are out there has actually been in place for the better part of 25 years. Yeah, you alluded to that in the beginning. And how much would this cost that client and for you to come in there and do something like this? That exact cost was roughly uh, half a million dollars Okay, for that install. Does that include the equipment and everything? It does. Yep. Okay. So are you netting like half of that? In that case, uh, not that much because you don't make that much of a hardware. With that, is there another example? Because again, I don't know if this is normal to bring in. That's the reason I was asking about bringing in physical hardware, right? Versus just, I can understand automation of software and stuff like that, but I don't know if it's an extreme example or if you, what it normally looks like when a client calls you, what the basic client looks like. Yeah, those are just two fun cases. The reason I brought those two up is specifically because they were the first, right? But the more relevant part lately is because of the amount of new home sales. The mortgage industry is obviously taking off. So if you think about mortgage documents, you basically have a loan package coming through, and there's a lot of different documents associated with a loan package. Well, as those documents come through, you utilize artificial intelligence to to actually read the different documents that are coming through, and then you can route them through the workflow for post-closing. And with that, are we, again, just using, they already have certain machines. Is this physical paper? Or is this just, you know, stuff that are coming in as PDF and they're using some software that you create to help them out? Typically, it's PDFs to come in and we utilize software that we work with to automate the actual identification of the documents as they come through, plus reading the actual characters off of those documents. And how long does that take? Can you give us me a little bit more in depth of like how long it would take and whatnot for something like that? Sure. Basically, as the documents come through, it's kind of interesting because let's say you have a package of mortgage documents and typically it's going to be about 200 different pages that come through. It's going to actually go through and it's going to be able to read the notes. It's going to be able to read the HUD. Once those documents come through, you're going to get about an 80 to 85% hit rate on the various documents as they're coming through the system. Humans will then identify the remaining balance of those documents to make sure that you get a 100% hit rate. Now, the interesting part is we talked about how machines improve accuracy. So one of the customers that we worked with prior to utilizing machine learning technology, their actual hit rate utilizing humans, they had an error rate of 4.2%. So if you can imagine when the Great Recession happened, everybody should talk about the meltdown of the mortgage industry and the fact that there were a lot of bad documents out there within these notes, right? The loans that were sold back out in the market. Well, the real problem was as these mortgages are coming through, you basically had humans interacting with the documents and they didn't know what the different documents were. You'd think that after you train somebody, they do it for five, 10 years, they're going to get 100% hit rate. Well, the actual hit rate was anywhere from 95 to about 96%. That really didn't matter across every organization that you worked with. Once you have machines doing the vast majority of the heavy lifting and they're grabbing 80 to 85, 90% of those documents that are coming through, then all you have left is you have that small balance that humans are interacting with. And then your accuracy rate jumps to about 99.8 to 99.9%. So you have a substantial increase by utilizing this technology of improving the overall processes of a mortgage lending application. Is that because you have like multiple humans checking those last 15% of the documents coming in? Exactly. Not only that, If you have a room full of humans sitting down and telling you what 200 different document types are, you will never end up with the same set of documents that each human identifies correctly. 
So your error rate goes up exponentially. But if you have a machine that consistently identifies a document one way or another, your error rate drops exponentially. And so before, did they only have one person checking each like 200 page, let's say, thing come in? No. Or they had multiple every time? Yep. I don't think a lot of people understand this too. I've heard this and I agree with it. Let's just say if I was needed to make a lead list for my business, right? And you want to hire one person off Upwork to help you like find emails for potential clients. Well, one way I heard that a lot of people get around it, the errors, let's say like finding these people's email, hire two people to do the same task. And then whatever the difference is, then there's, you get a better chance of making the higher probability of getting right. Right. So if both people match up the email, then it's probably 99% chance this is right email. And this is basically what you're saying is like, instead of having two people check 200 pages of these same things, you rather have two people check the last 15% or like 30 pages of a document and that that's what makes the probability way higher that it's all right you definitely understand the concept good job hey i'm coming for you creating my own uh, artificial intelligence company right after we get off this episode i love it good for you i'm just obviously kidding here and how much did that cost was it for one company you implemented that and like how did that work out no, we've done a few. In fact, the nice thing about it is prior to the Great Recession, we did we actually implemented a system for an organization that was taken over. And because we had implemented and successfully put that system in place that I just described to you, they were able to retain all 400 employees because all the rules and all the policies that the government required lending institutions to have were already in place because of what we were able to accomplish prior to the Great Recession. So it has, obviously, everyone talks about the negative things of the Great Recession, but I think that there was a lot of positive things because now we have more accurate information within our mortgage loans. So when they are sold back out in the street as bonds, they have a higher rate associated with them. So overall, I think that it's been good. That solution that I just described was about a million and a half dollars. The nice thing about it is after spending a million and a half dollars, 400 jobs were saved during the Great Recession. Very positive result. And how long did it take you to make that software? And is it like a special software that you're making each time within your own type of software, guys? It's not. We actually resell a couple of different technologies that are out there. Me personally, I don't know what that looks like. Do I open Keymark as an EXE and on my computer, you have a special name on it for each company? Or, you know, that's what I'm trying to understand, too, so people can visualize. Like, we heard just how they did it, right? But I'm just visualizing if I'm on a computer, like, how does that work? Yeah, we're a systems integrator. So we are blessed and work with the best technologies that are out there. And a couple of the companies that we work with very closely are, for example, Highland Software. They're based out of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And then we work with some of the technologies that I've been talking about are used, are based on Highland. Others are based on a company called Kofax. They're based out of California. And then we work with a number of other institutions that are out there. RPA, Robotic Process Automation, which is a company called Blue Prism. They're based out of England. And when I talked about how artificial intelligence works, that was the product that I was talking about there. The beautiful thing about an organization like us is we understand how all these various products work together. And when we package them for a company, you end up with a beautiful result because you have an end-to-end process that improves the overall productivity of an organization, plus enhances their ability to either, if it's a government entity, improve the constituents access and what they're able to do. Or if it's a business themselves, it lets them thrive because they're able to achieve greater results in what their overall processes are. Is your wife from Cleveland? No, she's an army brat. She's from everywhere in the world. You said beautiful Cleveland, you know, so I figured that you must know somebody up there if you just threw that in there. I usually don't get to hear that that often. So 
but I have a lot of great friends up there. So I was just giving them a plug. There you go. I knew it was something. There had to be something <laughs> from there, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I appreciate you. Hopefully not anyone's fallen asleep yet. I just thought it was interesting to kind of dive in these details right now, but now let's actually talk about your story. And that way we'll kind of talk about higher end and what the other entrepreneurs can learn from, you know, building a business like yours without diving in everything that we kind of dove into now. Yeah. I kind of feel bad. We got deep quick. Yeah. So I guess you want to talk about graduating and then coming out of college or tell me what the best part is to jump into your story of when you started the business. I guess it's kind of interesting. So I actually do presentations to high school kids around here. And I always start out the presentation by saying there's 7 billion people in the world. There's about 2 billion jobs. Don't try to go through school and end up only focused on one job. So my goal in life was to be the Philadelphia Philly fanatic. I don't know if you know that mascot. Yeah, it's the green guy who's the Philadelphia Phillies mascot, right? That is correct. I'm good. Yep. So that was my dream job graduating from college. And now we're, look where you ended up. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is my better plan. <laughs> it's like the exact opposite of being a mascot is dealing with artificial intelligence, it seems like. That is 100% correct. Yeah. Well, I went to tryouts in, at Vets Stadium, at the old Vets Stadium in Philadelphia. I love tryouts. It was so much fun. And Dave Raymond, who was the Philadelphia Philly mascot at the time, he actually created the actual Philadelphia Philly fanatic. I guess he liked me because he came up and we talked about how I could get the job. And ultimately, he looks at me and he goes, hey, we got one problem. I'm like, well, what's the problem? He goes, look at you, look at me. And I looked at him, I'm like, I still don't get it. And he goes, I'm 5'8", you're 6'2". It's the uniform's not going to fit. I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. So it ends up that I put on the uniform and I didn't do the best job during tryouts, probably because I was really focused on how my knees were showing. A couple of weeks later, Chris Lego, the VP of the marketing of the Phillies, calls me up and says, Jim, you need to get the job. And I said, can I ask why? And she goes, well, the uniform didn't fit. And I said, Chris. I said, I will pay for a new uniform. And I thought that a new uniform would cost probably about 6,000 bucks. I could finagle a few dimes or nickels out of my dad to hopefully help me pay for it. She says to me, well, it's actually $20,000. Jeez. Exactly. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like 2,000, to be honest. That's probably higher than a lot of people think, honestly, too. You know, I bet a lot of people thinking right now thought it was like 500 bucks or something like that. Oh, yeah. You never look at that thing and think it's 20 grand. Well, the woman who designed that uniform is actually the same woman who designed Miss Piggy. So I always joke that I didn't get my dream job because of Miss Piggy. There you have it. Well, you talked about Philadelphia. So are you from Philadelphia? Is that like, why did you want to be the Philadelphia mascot? Well, I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I went to school with James Madison. I was the mascot at JMU. I really, really liked the Philadelphia Philly mascot. I thought he was, he was the only person who I really admired and I thought would be a good person for me to actually fill that suit. So that was kind of like my entire focus and what I was trying to accomplish. So you went to college to try to be a mascot? I didn't. I kind of backed my way into it because I wasn't the best student ever. I had a couple of skills. I was really good at mascotting. Beard chugging was another one of my great skills. This was kind of the things I could do. And so, yeah, coming out of school, you're 22, 23. Correct. You failed at your life goal at the time? I did. Yeah. Okay. Miserable. Yep. Then what happened? Then I, I worked up in D.C. for a little bit. And ultimately, I thought that living in a big city would be good for me. But ultimately, it wasn't exactly how I wanted to live the rest of my life. I'm probably not a good big city person. So my dad insinuated that he wanted to start a company, a marketing company down in South Carolina. So I moved down to South Carolina when I guess I was 24 years old. And at that point in time, it was really tough because I left all my friends. Um, I left, you know, what I consider to be kind of my base, right? All those good friends that you built up in college. And I think that as an entrepreneur, the hardest thing you have to do is you kind of have to blaze new paths. And sometimes when you blaze those paths, it's very, very difficult. And 
I admire anybody who does this because it's probably the most mind-numbing process is how do you make sure you're successful? And I read a book recently about how you have to leave things behind and you have to move on from it and you have to almost recreate yourself. So when I think about it, I think that that's ultimately what I had to go through. I had to literally sacrifice for years and years to basically at least get my feet underneath me and to make sure that we could be successful as an organization. Obviously, it has paid off for me in the end, but it was a few tough years, especially a a little bit more of loneliness than I was accustomed to, to basically being able to pull it off. You said Pennsylvania was where you're originally from? That is correct. Yep. Yeah. You said it so quick, the city. I didn't get the city. Oh, Lancaster. Lancaster. Okay. Lancaster. Oh, Lancaster. Okay. There we go. I'm like, you don't say it correctly. (laughs) My bad. Okay. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. All right. So now I know because I usually put in Google Maps to kind of see where you've gone and stuff. And I'm like, I could not come up with a city name close to what I thought you said. Yeah. They say it different up in Pennsylvania than they do down south. Okay. So they say Lancaster in the south. And what did they say up north? Lancaster. Oh, Lancaster. Okay. There we go. So from there, like you said, you were up in DC. That's the only thing that I was a little confused by. Did you not have any friends in DC either? Because you're like, you said you'd left friends. Oh, I had a lot of friends in DC. You know, ultimately by going to JMU, you have a lot of friends in DC and Richmond after everybody graduates. So I worked for a, an IBM partner up in that area. And ultimately they were, IBM modified their VAR program, value-added reseller program. So that company was going to pretty much have to modify itself to be able to survive or go out of business. So I realized the writing was on the wall and I was trying to look for a new path. And ultimately I ended up just deciding to try to do my own thing at that point in time. And you're Mr. Acronym, this is for sure. So GMU is James Madison University for anyone who's listening, right? That is correct. I see I'm smarter than I sound. I was just looking at JMU there. Okay. And then, so you decided to go down South to South Carolina at like, how old are you? And what's, when I guess what year? I was 24 years old at that point in time. So 1992, I think if I did this calculation, right? 1990, actually. Oh, 1990. So I'm not that smart. February 1st, 1990 to be specific. Okay. So 1990 there. And then. I moved back in with my parents, which is probably the hardest thing I've ever done, to be honest with you. Yeah. So I was going to ask why he moved down there. I figured maybe he got divorced or something like that. I just wanted to try my own thing. But your dad had just started a company. He invited you. So it was the two of y'all, right? Correct. That is 100% correct. At that point in time, you've got to have a roadmap for what you're going to accomplish. So I knew coming out of school, there was two things that I wanted to be involved with. One was healthcare and the other was computers and as a backup plan. And I think that if you're going to give anybody advice coming out of school, I think that understanding what kind of verticals you need to be in that are going to grow and expand, I think is very important. Don't pick a profession that's going to shrink. Pick a profession that's going to grow and definitely be around in the future. So I knew that we wanted to, I wanted to be at least in those two verticals. And ultimately that paid huge dividends for me down the road. But even when you moved down there, why did your parents move down there from Pennsylvania? My brother lived in Georgia, and if you've ever been to this part of South Carolina, the lakes and the mountains are absolutely beautiful. So we're in the foothills here. Great people, great land, just an awesome place to live. So basically, as a get closer to your brother, did was he older and had kids or something? Yes, he's 10 years older. He's actually the CFO of a company making a vaccine right now for COVID. Okay, nice. Well, thank him for later, as long as it works, right? 
Correct. Yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't work, I'll have to edit. edit this out. <laughs> I don't want to hurt you. I don't want people writing me bad emails. So they go down there. You decide to leave your friends. I mean, that's a hard age too to like leave your friends. I feel like I guess even when I was probably coming out of college or whatever, I'm like, oh, I'll have friends forever. But as you get older, more and more people have kids, and you just lose friendships over time. And even now, it's kind of harder for me. I'm in my mid 30s, but especially at that age coming out, it's like all you do is have friends. Really coming out of college at that point. And I had a lot of them coming out of college. Yeah. It was very difficult to leave. And again, was it just on the idea of like, you talked to your dad once and he's like, hey, son, let's go ahead and start a company? It was actually Christmas. Yeah. Tell us how that conversation went. He just said, I'm going to start this company. And he goes, would you be interested in joining? I asked him what it was going to be doing. And he said it was going to be marketing and marketing within the healthcare and technology space. That's exactly what I'm interested in. I'd love to join. So Basically, I decided to pack it up and head down on February 1st. Within about five weeks, I was down here with him. He had just started it up in December. So we were two months into it and we're off and running. And so how much did he offer you in salary? That would be a big solid zero. So although he did pick up my credit card bill, which I appreciated. So did you get any equity? Yes, actually, he was very kind. So basically, the amount of equity that he took was actually the smaller portion. We've heard for years that it's important to have a diversified portfolio. Stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, that kind of thing. But if you've ever looked at a breakdown of the most successful portfolios, you'll typically see a diversified set of real estate. So why isn't it one of the first asset classes you consider when you're looking to diversify? Simple, it hasn't been available to investors like you and me until now, thanks to Fundrise. They make it easy for all investors to diversify by building you a portfolio of institutional quality real estate investments. So whether you're just starting to invest in real estate or looking to add more, our friends at Fundrise have you covered. Here's how. Fundrise is an investing platform that makes investing in high quality, high potential real estate as easy as investing in your favorite stock or mutual fund. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or preferred long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise has you covered. To date, Fundrise manages more than $1 billion in assets for 130,000 investors. And since 2014, the Fundrise platform has averaged 8.7 to 12.4% annual returns. And investors have earned more than $79 million in dividends alone. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via asset updates. So start building your better portfolio today. Get started at fundrise.com inspiration to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. That's fundrise, F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash inspiration to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. Fundrise.com slash inspiration. With the holiday season quickly approaching as you stock up on stocking stuffers for family and friends, don't forget to treat yourself as well and take a chance on that idea for a business or side hustle you want to take from part-time to full-time. Today's show is sponsored by Teachable. Whether you have an offline business that you'd like to bring online or have a niche or passion you'd like to teach others, Teachable is here to help. 
Teachable is a platform that allows independent entrepreneurs and creators to build and sell fully customizable online courses and services. Join our over 100,000 instructors who have transformed their knowledge into world-class courses and have earned more than 500 million to date. To help you get started as a special offer for our listeners, visit teachable.com forward slash inspiration and enter your email for a free masterclass, walking you through the exact steps you take to create your own online school and start making money. That's teachable.com forward slash inspiration. Enter your email for a free masterclass again to help you get your online school started today. Y'all are starting off down in the South in 1990. Just walk us through, like, I guess you were there day one as it started. So how everything even gets started back then, because this is, I guess the internet was kind of around, but not really. Well, that's another interesting story. I just told my son, we were actually involved and one of our first marketing customers was actually an internet provider back in the day. The first organizations we worked with were basically, believe it or not, artificial intelligence companies. So back then they called it a, really, it was just called an expert system, which today would be called a rules engine. So that was one of our first customers. And then in the healthcare space, we worked with doctors within the area and also CVS Pharmacy. We brought them down with some of the pharmaceutical benefit plans. Then what we accomplished, we had a couple of accounts. We made enough to survive at that point in time, which was kind of the goal, right? And we kept trying to figure out what we could do to have two things. Number one, recurring revenue that was sustainable because that was important to us. But number two, an area that we could grow the organization so that it could prosper. So we had some recurring revenue within the healthcare space that we were working with. So CVS Pharmacy was providing us that regular cash to basically pay our bills. And what we're trying to look for is how this machine learning that what we call now machine learning was going to take off. We were closely monitoring some of the things that were happening within the space at that point in time. And we worked very closely with some state agencies. And we actually started automating the Department of Revenue of South Carolina back in 1996. That was our first big account that got us going within the space. And that gave us enough funding based upon the spreadsheet that I built to cover our expenses for the better part of 10 months. So Another partner of mine at that time wasn't necessarily a technology guy. He was more of a process guy. So we hired a gentleman who's still with us today, we're very proud to say. I think two weeks from now or three weeks from now will actually be his 25th year of working with us. And he was a computer science major. And we hired him to handle the implementation. Yeah, but you said it's a healthcare marketing company when you came down here. That was a plan. But to me, it doesn't sound like anything with healthcare or marketing, really, other than obviously CVS having to deal with health. Is it disconnect there? Yeah, we know we use that as a cash flow to help fund our current business. So we started out using working with the doctors and working with CVS Pharmacy. That kind of gave us the cash flow that we needed because I would encourage anybody who's starting out a business to think about how you can get cash flow to get where your core business is. So I actually said this to my son at dinner last night. The funny thing about when you start up is you don't necessarily have success with everything that you do. And I read that you had to have 18 different businesses before you found one that actually worked. Um, back in the day. And I added it up and we tried 15 different things before we found one that had sustainable cash flow that we could actually build a business model on and really grow and expand upon. So the funny thing about it is, I'm not sure exactly who's listening to this podcast, but you have a lot of people who try something once, they fail, and they feel like they've been ultimately failures forever. And I would encourage you to say, to wake up the next morning, the sun's going to come up and go get some exercise, get a good breakfast and realize you didn't fail. 
you successfully learned a new way not to build a business. And I think that's kind of the key to success from an entrepreneur's standpoint, because every time you struggle, every time you basically don't hit a home run, you basically have to just sit back, think about what it is that you learned from that. And don't think about all the nuances about it, because ultimately, if you focus on the dirty ugly stuff. You can never move on from it. You have to sit there and you have to say, what are the three things that I would write in a book that I learned from this failure that I can grow upon, that I can take advantage of, that'll make me a better person as I move forward? And I think that's kind of the key to every entrepreneur that's out there is not looking at these things and these failures as ultimately just as a dismal part of your life. You got to look at it like an opportunity that you literally learn from it and how you're going to succeed going forward is really based upon all these failures that you've had in the past. And you said you have to try something like 18 times, you're saying? Yep. And so I guess the idea was even if you tried 17 other things within the business, you came down with this healthcare marketing idea, and then you kept trying different revenue models, basically, and none of them were working. That is correct. Until you finally got on this. Yeah, none of them were working beautifully. And then finally, we, we kind of started hitting a, a couple of home runs. One of my favorites is when the internet kicked off, we were working with a local internet provider. And ultimately, you know, back in the day, we got hired from this company to help them with their marketing side of the internet. And it was a local internet provider and they didn't have a lot of cash. So for them to pay us to be able to help them market and, and to grow was very, very difficult. I literally went to the local radio stations, local television stations, the local newspapers, and I offered a free webpage and email address. And we register their domain. For that, we asked them to, if it was a newspaper, to put ads in the newspaper. If it was radio, we asked them for primetime radio spots. And believe it or not, everybody did this for us. It was such a hot thing. So this company went from signing up maybe five, 10 people a day to signing up like 100 new people on the internet per day. And their business just absolutely took off. So it was a fascinating thing to be a part of in the beginning. And one of those guerrilla marketing campaigns that I'll never forget. And I'm very proud that we were able to do at that point in time. Your first thing did work actually then, right? It did, but not for me. Somebody else owned that company. You and your dad, I thought were like partners in it, no? Oh, well, no. That internet company was one of our clients. So from a marketing standpoint, they were actually a client of ours. Yeah, but it sounds like you did a good job, right? So like you could go do that with other people. Yeah, that's true. Actually, that's a good point. We probably should have, like some of the, when the baby bells broke up, we probably should have had looked at prospering with some of the telephone providers because we did take a look at that industry and did some work there. So I think that in general, anytime there's significant change, like when the bells broke up and then they reemerged in the 90s, you're probably too young to remember that when Judge Green broke up AT&T. But that was an opportunity. And that, that's kind of the things that are interesting. Like, you had green breaking up the AT&T. The next thing you know, you have the internet pops up and all of a sudden all these internet companies come up. And now Bell South's huge again. Obviously, AT&T is huge again. And anytime there's some change within the marketplace, you need to take a look at it and see what those opportunities are for businesses to thrive. So we did a nice job for our customer. They were very successful. They offered us actually 10% of the business. I just told my son that story last night at dinner. and He didn't even know that. But we felt that if we were going to rely on an individual for our success, that they had to be a stable individual and somebody that ultimately could be able to guide an organization going forward. And we felt that that was a very successful person and an entrepreneur, but we didn't feel like he was stable enough to sustain a long-term business model. So we elected not to go that route. And we elected to do our own thing, utilizing optical character recognition, machine learning, document management, workflow processing. 
Right. But even like the internet service provider, ISP, so everyone knows, is that, again, that wasn't even in healthcare. No, it wasn't. It was a complete pivot. So I guess that's one success. Did your first client did not work out? Or like, that's what I'm trying to figure out too, because it seems like a lot of random stuff that maybe this one did work, but what didn't work to get you to, I guess, where you started with the artificial intelligence, if you will. All those things that we tried, actually, they did work, right? But at that point in time, we weren't making enough money to hire people. How much money were you making? At that point in time, I think the most I made that year was probably like $39,000. And I think from a company standpoint, our revenue was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 90000 in total. So if you think about it, the problem is how do you hire people? How do you make sure that those people have good health insurance? You know, they have all the things that they need to be successful. So you have to really think through what your business model looks like. And we could have been really successful being marketing consultants at that point in time. But we felt that there was much more out there for us. We kept poking away and trying to look for other opportunities. So this makes sense. As they talk about like getting trapped by your business or even if kind of going back to like being an accountant and you're making just enough money to survive if you had your own accountancy, your business, right? But not enough like where you could see the potential. And that's what you and your dad were saying. are like, okay, we're barely kind of making ends meet. Let's keep trying something else. Because even though you might have had this one project successful and Maybe every other one was working out okay. It wasn't working out enough where you were going to make a lot of money and make a big business, if you will. That is 100% correct. Yep, that's exactly right. Now, my dad didn't care. He would have been fine to stand at the small size. The other partner at the time, he wanted to grow. I wanted to grow. And ultimately, we kept plugging away, trying to look for something that was bigger and brighter in the future. What was your office space like there? Oh, terrible. The worst. I'm in a room now that's probably about 14 by 14. And I think... The nice thing about it is this one actually has a window in it. Our first office. Oh my gosh. Y'all didn't have a window? No. I cannot be in a room without a window. I remember in the wintertime walking outside and if it was after six o'clock, it was pitch black. So when I got to work, it was dark. And when I went home, it was dark. That was a little bit rougher back then. I would openly admit. And three of y'all working in the same room? Actually, back then it was only two of us. Would y'all just go out and go implement half the day? Because I'm trying to get an idea of like what your work life was. When you come out of there, we know you said you didn't have a lot of friends. And then that is kind of depressing being in a room without windows and going to work when it's dark and coming back when it's dark. But I think it's important that we talk about these because there's people in that position right now wondering, like, should I be doing this? Or like, we haven't heard exactly a lot about the company, your company today, but we can tell that you've been successful. But just again, this early on stuff, is there anything else that you think we should know about getting started here? Yeah, I think it's a mental position. And I think the best thing that you can do, something that I did that was really helpful, is there was a guy by the name of Brian Tracy who wrote a lot of, or I, in his case, I listened to his tapes more than anything. But he talked more about the mental mind power and how to establish your brain for success. And I think that in general, as I was failing doing things, I think I was also conditioning my mind by reading books and listening to people like Brian Tracy so that I was at least able to fight my way through those things. I can honestly say that I think that anybody who thinks you're going to get through these, these difficult times without exercising and without having some form of friends on the outside, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. I think you have to, A, be ready mentally to perform every day. So I think if you can get up and exercise, that's a great thing to do. I think that B, you might be working out of a place that has zero windows and you might not know if it's raining, you might not know if it's sunny, you might not know if it's snowing. So you have to be mentally ready to deal with those types of things because 
To me, it is somewhat difficult to work in the Batcave and to still be successful. And then C, I think that back then I wrote a journal and I kept a journal and I've often thought if, if I should restart that journal. So I basically, I wrote notes every night about what I learned that day. And I think that that was very, very helpful for me. And then the hardest one for me to work with, and this was a really tough day for me, the day that my wife's water broke, we lost probably one of the biggest deals that we would have won that would have given us enough cash flow to really live healthy. And basically, we lost that deal at like four o'clock in the afternoon. Next thing you know, I got a sun coming that night. I happened to, instead of being depressed and coming home and drinking my sorrows away, I literally bought a book called Think and Grow Rich while I was in the hospital, basically, when my son wasn't screaming his head off or my wife wasn't taking a nap. I literally read the book Think and Grow Rich. And one of the things in the book was say something positive to yourself every morning about what you want to accomplish and then do the same thing at night. And I did that every day for the better part of probably two decades. I still do it, but not quite as much as I probably should. And then just repeat those same things to yourself so that you can be mentally prepared to take on the day. And I think that everybody has to do something like that to be successful. And I would encourage people that are going through those dark times, if you're out there, do yourself a favor, grab these types of books, grab the type of tapes or podcasts like this one, I'm not going to say you're going to learn something from everything, but hopefully you pick up one or two things that are really going to be a difference maker for you mentally so that you can succeed during those dark times because those dark times are really depressing and they get you down. They almost demoralize you to the point that basically you don't want to get up in the next morning and you got to have something to get your mindset to be successful. And anything that you can do to accomplish that is going to be the difference between success and enjoying success or failure and not being able to, to overcome those objections that you're hit with on a daily basis. What motivated you to keep going, especially in those early years? Well, I had a son now. What age did you have your son? 29. So what motivated me? I would say that the major motivation for me was fear of failure and fear of letting others down. I think there is power associated with fear that people tend to get overwhelmed by. I think that in general, you know, for me, it was always the concept of there's always a brighter side of this. I live in the United States of America. Alexander Hamilton did a great job of setting up our country so that we all had a chance to succeed. I had every responsibility for taking advantage of that and hopefully for setting up opportunities for others that I work with to be successful as they move forward too. So I think that in general, those dark days were, you know, they weren't the most fun I've ever had in my life. Working to 11 o'clock by myself, printing out letters to send out to prospects just to get new customers. I mean, I found that rather difficult back in the day of the dot matrix printer that would take about two minutes to print a page. And if you had a three-page document you were sending out and you were printing out a hundred of those, it would take a long time to get all those printed, folded. And then you'd have to lick the envelope, which never tasted good back in the day. When you look back on those days, to be candid, I haven't really thought about it that much until this podcast. It creates you as a better person because then you have the ability to really get through some of the harder times that come at you. There will be times like that. You're going to face times where you might have to look at a banker and you might have to say, hey, we don't have the best times going forward. But I think the interesting part of it is when you have been through it and you've been through the difficult times, that once you have been through those, it makes those times where you have to prepare and you have to plan and you have to execute and you have to have the difficult discussions with maybe a banker or somebody who you have a loan with, it makes it a lot easier because you have thought it through to the point that you know exactly what it's going to take for you to thrive. 
and you can actually design a plan to get yourself out of it so that you don't fail. And the more you can plan, the more you can execute, and the more that you feel confident in where you're heading, the better off you're going to be. I know it gets, it gets rough. I mean, it gets really rough when you think you're going to lose your house, your cars, your business, and you're three days from making payroll, right? Those days are as difficult as any day that you're ever going to run into. But I think that in general, if you have your mind mentally ready to perform and you have done the right things in the past and you've been through the failures, the difference is eventually you actually figure out what it's going to take to break through. And once you break through, then it becomes so much easier. You still have that anxiety in your system that you don't want to fail, right? You're still going to always have it there. But once you break through and you understand what the other side of the equation looks like, then all of a sudden you kind of can relax a little bit. And it's definitely worth it. It's worth pushing through to get to that point. What point did the business actually start becoming successful? Because again, it made sense. I guess I was trying to focus in even when you started the business, because 29 when you had the kid, right? At that point, it makes sense to me. I think anyone would be motivated at that point. You can't just sit around and not go to work. You're like, you have to provide at some point, but maybe the 24 to 29 year old range, if you will. At that point, it sounds like it took a couple of years to get the business going in the right direction. Is that right? Yep, that is true. So yeah, what year was it? Would you say you finally had your turning point? And then we can kind of take it chronologically of like how the business grew. I would say 1996. So six years. No, so it was right after you had your kid. Yeah, right afterwards. Okay, so up to that point, were you making about like 30000 a year or so? Yeah, pretty much. That's correct. Did you feel like you were accomplished or how did you feel personally about yourself? Deep down, I felt like I was struggling to get over the top. I felt like there was a lot of opportunity out there, but I couldn't crack the door. So I remember specifically right before a wedding, I interviewed for a job with Revco to be a pharmaceutical rep and the phone booth isn't there anymore. But when I drive down to Myrtle Beach, I, I can still picture the phone booth where it was when I called to figure out if I didn't get that job. I did. Well, I wasn't heading down a path of success. I felt like I was going down a path of struggling and just a me too guy, I guess is a way to put it. Did you leave your father's company and get a, a job? I did not. I did not get hired. At that point in time, he really wasn't necessarily active in the business. He had kind of stepped away and moved and was getting ready to move down to Florida. So he wasn't really an active participant in the business. I realized it was kind of up to me to make the turn if the company was going to make it. So I had to keep pushing through. What made the turn? Like, how did things finally turn around right after you had your kid and you were 30 years old? I would say the difference that made the turn is that we were able to get into the right technology space and we're able to get customers that were a reference. Because once we had a customer base and we had people that believed in us and we were in the right opportunities, one time in, in 1999, we had a company meeting, for example, and we had four accounts that were implementing, three were struggling. And I looked at the other people that we worked with and I said, come hell or high water, every customer is going to be a reference from this day forward. And that kind of became the mantra of this organization that we were going to always take care of the customer no matter what. And I think that that gave us the momentum that we needed to get us through because then we realized that the customer reference was key for our ability to grow and prosper. So now we have about 500 different software customers and our support team gets over our net provider score is the equivalent of like Tesla. It's up in the 70s, which is something that we're so proud of. So I think if you look at it, you have to have kind of that basic standard of life as to what you really need to push yourself through. You have to have a slogan or a saying or something that everybody can get behind. And for us, 
at that point in time of our careers, that was definitely the theme that really drove us to be successful because that meant that we had, A, had to pick the right companies to work with, B, we had to hire the right people, and C, we had to make sure that every customer was taken care of so that we could use them as references because that was not a minor issue back when you're doing brand new things like we were at the time. To call on those people as reference was such a big issue because we needed somebody to say, what we're saying is going to work. We are a good company. You can trust us. You can trust us with your data. You can trust us with these processes. And by saying, come power hard water, that every customer is going to be a reference. It's something that we were really proud of as a small group at that point in time. And it kind of fueled our growth and made us who we are today. When did you make the first like artificial intelligence guy hire? Because up to this point, you had no experience in it, it sounded like. Yeah, we hired our first computer science major and came on board in October of 1996. And this is when you said the business changed. It did. Yeah, it transformed at that point in time. Was it because of this person? I would say it was because we closed the Department of Revenue in South Carolina. We also closed Daytimers. I don't know if you remember Daytimers, a little schedule tracking company up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And then we closed Farm Bureau Insurance Company. So we closed three accounts. And but closed accounts means a good thing, correct? Correct. That is correct. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Wow, I feel bad. Yeah. yeah it's like a negative for, <laughs> you know, for medical stuff. And you're like, oh, that's actually a positive. So, I mean, I understand that. But again, I want to make sure everyone's on the same page here. No. And it was kind of funny because our total expenses at that point in time. So we basically had three people that were on payroll. We had an office that was just an absolute dump. The one time it rained, I think we had two and a half inches of water in our, I guess, our main room. We'll call it our conference room. And I, we paid 550 a month in rent for 1,100 square feet. And our total expenses for three people, cars, phones, everything all in was $10,000 a month. So those three accounts gave us the ability to run the company for the better part of 17 months just off of the gross margin. And that's how we're able to continue hiring people, continue investing in marketing, continually investing in the vendors and training that we needed to be prosperous long term. So you said you made that hire with the artificial intelligence guy, but were you already doing it yourself? Like you knew it and then you needed this guy to help you out, obviously a lot more, but like you had figured this stuff out by yourself beforehand? Myself and another gentleman who I worked with at that point in time. How did you learn that? Well, back then, you, you kind of just backed your way into, into these types of things. So it was, you pick somebody who is in the middle of doing it, and we just kind of backed our way into figuring it out. Well, who was in the middle of doing it? Back in the day, there was about four or five different companies that were just getting started doing this. They were all small companies, ranging revenue from about 5 to $10 million. Now, one of them is owned by Highland, one of our partners. Another is actually owned by IBM which is part of what they consider to be Watson right now. And ultimately, another one's owned by a company out of Canada. So all these companies kind of started up at, at one time. They were willing and able to work with you and train you as long as you're willing and able to use sweat equity and bust your tail to be successful. Were you doing something else for those companies? No, we were just selling, implementing, and supporting systems that we sold. So you make $0. If you don't sell anything, you made money if you sold something. Right. So you're selling them stuff that you didn't know about, and then they're teaching you it? We were selling their technology. So we were selling their software. Okay. So they had a program for companies like yours to learn this, and then you go sell and close these other clients, is what you're saying? Correct. And how do you even learn about this at this time? 
Great question. We found out about this through basically a company up in Indianapolis. They were involved in this. They were involved in the printing business. And ultimately, we decided we were going to be a marketer for them and market their, their printing services combined with the optical character recognition reading. They basically had a partnership with a company down in Tampa, Florida, and we became a sub-dealer for that company out of Tampa, Florida. The company up in Indianapolis had a change of power. There was a new president. And when my son, who is now a newborn, was lying on my chest, the new president of the company called me up after he was using me as a consultant as to how to tweak the organization to be successful. And he calls me up and he goes, it was a Sunday afternoon and my son's sleeping there and he, get, he starts cussing me out because he owed us $43,000 for a $256,000 deal that we closed. And he said that he wasn't going to pay us. And I said, well, you'll get our cancellation notice within 15 minutes. So I basically had to wake up my son. I had to plug in the fax line into the phone. I had to write the document and I sent him my cancellation notice. That's how we became partners of MTI back in the day, Microsystems Technologies based out of Tampa. And that was kind of the start for us in the space. Hey guys, you know who it is. Your host, Austin, with another new Fiverr ad read. And as you may know, the way we work together seemingly changed overnight. If there's one thing we've learned for adapting business, having access to the right resources is essential and crucial to maintain a strong digital presence. 2020 has been the year of uncertainty. So how can your business plan for the unexpected operate virtually? Finding the right talent can be time-consuming, frustrating, and expensive. It's difficult to keep up with current best practices for maximizing your digital presence. Fiverr's online marketplace connects businesses with freelancers offering hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. You know what? My favorite experience with Fiverr is the low prices for those awesome Fiverr projects. You know, Fiverr has a network of quality talent you can count on. This time is difficult for all of us. Freelancers have worked with some of the most influential brands in the world. Find freelancers that are ready when you are. Fiverr's platform is flexible enough to accommodate and manage the ebb and flow of business. Check out Fiverr.com and receive 10% off your first order by using my code MILLIONAIRE. Find all the digital services you need in one place at F-I-V-E-R-R.com code MILLIONAIRE. Again, that's Fiverr.com code MILLIONAIRE. So those people, again, me trying to figure this out is like became a partner in a company because they couldn't owe you, they didn't pay you the rest of the bill. Uh, we No, we left those guys behind. They were up in Indianapolis. We became a partner of the manufacturer of the software is what we did. So this isn't easy to kind of figure out. Like I kind of understand, like we talked about high end, but again, you transitioning from a healthcare, quote unquote, healthcare marketing company to artificial intelligence and you being able to figure it out, you know? Yeah, it wasn't the easiest thing to do. I think that, you know, if you have skill sets, your skill sets have to be based upon being able to understand the nuances of these different technologies. And we kind of backed our way into it, to be honest with you. Just for clarity, the Tampa thing, I understand the Indianapolis thing now, but it kind of, but the Tampa thing still, I'm not sure how they coordinated with the Indianapolis company and the new president. The Indianapolis company was a reseller for the Tampa company. And we, instead of going through the Indianapolis company, we went directly to the Tampa company. And let them know that they weren't going to get the rest of the bill? Absolutely. 
how do you meet the Tampa people? See, I have to keep back ending how you found uh, yeah. the, That's what I'm trying uh, to say. Yeah, it's a fair question. I and you're making you're really pushing my my history program. <laughs> I know. So we met those guys by going to training down in Tampa. These are some hard entrepreneurial things because we had three huge deals with Blue Crosses lined up, and while we were in, in training in Tampa to learn about what we consider to be machine learning today. We basically had to have an RFP filled out for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Georgia. So we left the training that I should have been attending, and we drove up from Tampa up to Atlanta, got in at 2 in the morning, and tried to finish the RFP that night. Went to sleep at about 5, woke up at 6, did take a shower, went over to Blue Cross by 7 in the morning, and we had to have the RFP submitted by 12 o'clock. And this is crazy, but at 11.45, the three-and-a-half-inch floppy drive actually got corrupted. So I had to walk up to the C-level executive, Linda, and tell her that we're not going to submit the RFP, but I'd be happy to stay all night, whatever it took to hand in the RFP response. So she trusted us enough, which is the key to success as an entrepreneur. You got to have people to trust you to finish recreating that RFP and submitting it that night. So another gentleman and I literally sat there and just recreated the entire RFP, submitted it that night, and we won that deal. Was that your first deal as an artificial intelligence company? That was our first significant deal. That is correct. What is the name of the Tampa company? Just make it easier. Well, right now it's called Highland Software. I'll keep it simple. Okay, thank you. So in the Highland Software, when you met them, were you reading about artificial intelligence? And you're like, hey, that piqued your interest. And you're like, let me go down there and learn from these guys. Yeah, there was another gentleman I worked with that knew about optical character recognition. He owned as much of the company at that point in time as I did. He was very interested in that, and I was very interested in anything involving machine learning or computers or workflow and business process. So we were both pretty fired up about it. So we just kept doing more and more research to figure out where that industry was going to head because we believed that that was going to be something that would prosper in the future. How do you do research? And is this 96 still? Yeah, that's wow. You ask hard questions. (laughs) Uh, Man, back in the day, there was magazines that we would probably follow more than anything else. So there was a magazine called VAR Magazine, and we pretty much, we read that. There was a couple other computer magazines that we read about what was happening in the future. I think every time I walked through an airport, I'd buy at least two magazines before I jumped on an airplane just to figure out where the future was going to be heading. Yeah, it sounds like you're traveling a lot too. And I think people fall in, it's probably not the easiest, like chronologically, because we kind of went forward and backward and trying to figure this out. But I think what it does prove out is all the steps you have to take just to get this business going. Because up to this point, you sound like you were just making about 30K a year, like you had your quote unquote own business. But it's like, again, it's been somewhat hard to follow for some people, but you're like, damn, I know he's been all these places, done all these things, talking about Atlanta, Indianapolis, Tampa, where he came from, everywhere. It's just like, These are the hurdles that you have to go through just to even get started and finally make a successful business, it sounds like. Yeah, I call it more of a steeplechase than actually a race. For people who don't know what a steeplechase is, I did track for one season, so I do know, but other people might not. Yeah, I mean, it's basically you run around a track, but every now and then you have to jump over a hurdle that might have water in it. You might have to jump over a hurdle. You have to sprint. It's not one thing. It's always something different that you have to jump over. It's always more complicated than you think it's going to be. And so from this point, us figuring out, you finally closed your first big significant deal in Atlanta. How much was that deal? $256,000. And what was the margin like for that? Well, we were going to make 43000 That's the part that the Indianapolis company didn't want to pass. Oh, because even though you went to Atlanta, that company was in Indianapolis or something? 
That's correct. The customer was in Atlanta. It was Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Georgia. But the company that we were working with was based out of Carmel, Indiana. And then so you go, you drive back after you make the facts, and obviously they weren't a client anymore. You drive back to South Carolina and keep the train rolling. Now you feel like, you know, maybe you didn't get paid, but at least you got your training wheels, right? It seems like. That's actually true. I've never thought about it that way, but that is, yeah, that's true. We got our training wheels and ultimately we felt that we could market and sell these solutions out there. We kept plugging away and plugging away. And then we closed those three deals that I talked about that gave us $170,000 to keep us going for 17 months. And that was so monumental for us as an organization to be successful because to have 17 months of cash flow and be able to commit to training, to marketing, to buying back then a laptop that I had, I think I paid 4,300 bucks for it. That was a tremendous amount of money back then. And I think to be able to have that type of cash flow and be able to put it in a spreadsheet and map out how you could at least sustain a business, pay yourself, pay your bills and pay your taxes, by the way, was huge. Did you always pay your taxes? It's funny. Uh, <laughs> our finance guy who just retired last April, one of the most profound questions he asked me, and before I hired him, I interviewed about 50 people. I was so finicky about the first finance person we would hire because I had to relinquish control of what I was doing. One of the key questions he asked me is, do you pay your taxes? And I asked him later, I said, why did you ask me that question? He said, because the first thing to fail is when you don't pay your taxes, you get out of business. That was good advice. Yes. Because it's funny, I still remember this. I had a one of my friends, she was dating a dude who opened up a pizza place in Orlando and it was successful. And his business advice, because I always t said I wanted to open my own business or do my own thing. He's like, well, don't do what I did. I'm like, what's that? He's like, don't uh, forget to pay your taxes the first three years. Because he didn't know to even do that. <laughs> to be honest, you know, it's like there's all these little things that you don't necessarily know. And so it's like, I'm glad you got that advice. And again, anyone who's listening, just realize you do have to pay taxes. It's not like, oh, you just pay sales tax and pay your property taxes. There's also taxes you have to pay for your business. So just keep that in mind, whoever's listening. I mean, the quarterly estimated taxes are just brutal. Uh, I mean, well, let's talk about that for a second, right? So now we live in a world where taxes are going to go up. You know, as an entrepreneur, we had a guy here one day back in 2008, and he goes, I don't care who gets elected president. And I said, why is that? And he goes, well, if they raise taxes, it's not going to affect me. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, you know, I don't care. It's not going to affect me. So the next year, I had my accountant do two things. I asked them what the tax increase meant for me that I had to pay more and how it affected each individual in the company. And then I asked her how long I worked before I started making a dime. Because, you know, you pay at the corporate level in escort. And her comment was, it ended up being $753 for each employee that I'd pay extra in tax. And I worked till September 15th paying just federal and state tax before I earned one penny. So I hope that people understand, A, you got to pay your taxes, but B, don't overtax people who are actually trying to create jobs because what you end up doing is you end up taking jobs away. I mean, there's no free ride, so. There's none. You said, uh, Jim, I really do appreciate all the time you've had here. I mean, I didn't expect that we were going to probably make this into two parts, but I think this is important. Like we've learned so much up to this point that we can make this a part two, if that works for you, where we're talking about, hey, you're basically 30 years old. It seems like you finally made a breakthrough year with your business. And maybe we'll pick it up on the second part of the interview because we got a good, I guess, 20 plus years, right, of information that we could learn from, if that's okay from you. I'd be happy to do anything to help anybody out there. 
Okay, cool. So yeah, so what we'll do is we'll just do a second part of this. And again, appreciate you coming on and taking the chance to tell your story. If someone pauses now and forgets to listen to the second part, which I'm sure everyone's intrigued enough that they are going to, but what would be the best way for someone to say thank you for doing the interview? Well, they could just email me at jim.wanner, W-A-N-N-E-R, at keymark, K-E-Y-M-A-R-K-I-N-C.com. Or I am at uh, I am on Twitter, Jim Warner, and ultimately you can find me on LinkedIn as well. That would be completely acceptable. I'd be happy to if there if you have questions or if you have comments, if you have things that you're thinking about, if you're you know even if you're going through some mental issues and you just want somebody to bounce a couple of ideas off of. I remember one time I was down in Disney and we were waiting in line to ride the new Avatar ride, and this guy was in front of me and basically he started chatting with me. For those of you that have ridden the new Avatar ride, you're fully aware that it's at least a two-hour wait. So he just kept picking my brain and picking my brain. And it was kind of funny. Finally, I just gave him a card and I said, hey, if I can help you, just reach out to me. And the guy, he kept picking me for about two years, just asking me some questions. And I think he finally made the turn and he's successful. So if there's anything I do for you guys that are out there, I'd be happy to assist because I know it's not the easiest thing to do. And if I can just give you any good advice, any sound suggestions, I'd be happy to do so. Well, thank you again for sharing this part of the story. And Absolutely. Be sure everybody to check in part two, where we're going to go over the last 20 plus years of him finally breaking through. Like you said earlier, I mean, it took probably about 18 shots or whatever for you to finally make it successful. We're all, it doesn't mean the 18 different companies you have to do. It's like trying to do these different business models to make it succeed. So that's 100% correct. Yeah. So we look forward to catching up with you, Jim, on the second part and everyone tuning in then. Thanks for your time. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And so if you want the second part of this interview, it's actually available right now if you're a Patreon member. And basically, if you thought the first part of this interview was good, the second part only gets better. And if you're not a Patreon member, then check out the episode description below on how you can become one. And after signing up to become a Patreon, you'll instantly get access to the second part of this interview. So it's not like we're just talking for 10 or 15 minutes. We've got a whole another hour where I discuss things like well, maybe it'd be better if I just give you a preview of what you'll be hearing on the second part of this interview. The guy just looked at me and he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from South Carolina. And he turned around and he walked away. And I stood there in his booth and I looked at my partner at the time and I said, that is a comment that that man will regret for the rest of his life. And when we started becoming Highland's largest partner, ultimately it was kind of interesting because the company that turned their back on us literally reached out and was begging us to work with them. And I said, no, you guys turned your back on me in 1999 Atlanta. And I'll never forget that. That was a big mistake on your part. And it's been great for me. I appreciate you sharing that because I'm the exact same way. Some people are like, hey, you know, it happened in the past. You can still do business with them. I'm like, screw that. All of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there.